Hello and welcome to Jared Radio. This podcast is aimed to advance education study of the practice of law and legal rights. Welcome to the Jured Podcast, a podcast that provides juridical education through a lens of human rights over property interests. You may be listening to this podcast on a walk or from the comfort of your home, all the while adhering to social distancing protocols. Such luxury is not available to those locked up. Today's episode, we think hard about prison abolition, hunger strikes, caging children, mental illness, and forensic psychiatric detention carceral capitalism, and necropolitics. This discussion is part of the ongoing webinar series Contain COVID-19, Not People, a collaboration between the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy at Ryerson, the Prisoners' Rights Project, the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, and PASAN. The panel features Robin Maynard, activist, academic, and author of the book Policing Black Lives, lawyer Anita Shigeti, known for many years within the law union and president of Lambda, the Law and Mental Disorder Association. And finally, we hear from Justin Pichet, a professor from University of Ottawa who has worked on and written about prison abolition. So very honored to bring you this content and these stories. Have a listen. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. So welcome and thanks for joining us once again uh, for a panel uh, in the kind of Contain COVID-19, Not People series. My name is Jessica Evans. Uh, I'm going to be moderating tonight. Uh, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Ryerson University, and I'm also a member of the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. So I'm going to start with a land acknowledgement, as we did last week, and then I'll kind of give an overview about what the panel is intending to do tonight. I'll introduce our speakers, and then we'll just kind of get into it. So I'm entering this discussion from uh, Tikaranto, which is Mohawk for where the trees grow in the water. This land is the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of Nindu Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Attawandarok of the on Treaty 3 lands, which are also subject to the Dish with One Spoon Treaty. Now the dish, or sometimes it's called the bowl, represents what we refer to as Southern Ontario, from the Great Lakes to Quebec and from Lake Simcoe into the United States. Now we all eat out of the dish, all of us that share this territory with only one spoon. And that means that we have to share the responsibility of ensuring that this dish is never empty, which includes taking care uh, of the land and the creatures we share it with. Importantly, this also indicates that there are no knives at the table, representing that we must keep the peace. I offer this land acknowledgement not as a checklist piece or historical reflection, but a reminder of the ongoing colonial violence, our responsibilities to each other, the land, and the original caretakers of this land. Across Turtle Island and the world, the prison industrial complex is used as a tool to oppress Indigenous peoples and harm our communities. Our movement then for prison justice and abolition is a global movement. Today we're joined by prison abolition activists from across Turtle Island, all with their own unique stories and perspectives and united in shared goals. And the lessons that Indigenous peoples across the world offer, like the lesson found in the Dish with One Spoon Treaty, provides us a roadmap to realize justice for prisoners and for abolition. So today's webinar is the second in our series of Contain COVID-19, Not People, where our aim is to hear from activists and frontline workers, as well as academics, about the impacts of the current pandemic on incarcerated and criminalized populations. But further to this, we want to begin thinking about how the current moment has created both opportunities and obstacles to thinking through and practicing uh, prison abolition. So last week we set the stage with a general overview and the big takeaway I think from last week's kind of session was that while jails and prisons and other spaces of carceral confinement are in an acute crisis right now, these spaces have always posed a public health threat. So post-pandemic, in the post-pandemic period then, um, we need to, this, this period rather, will not eliminate the everyday threats uh, posed to health by prisons and carceral spaces, and so we need to be actively thinking about doing away with prisons in general. And so these are the kinds of things that we want to get at today. So today's panel is looking at those that are being left behind current depopulation efforts. 
last week, we started to see efforts to depopulate so-called low-risk populations in provincial jails. However, there are still many who have not even been considered for depopulation and who are being left behind. And so today we're going to talk about those being left behind. We're going to be focusing on folks in psychiatric settings, folks that are deemed violent criminals, and folks that are being held in immigration holding centers. So this event was organized by volunteers, activists, and academics that are committed to prisoner justice. This is a collaboration between the Canadian Student for Sensible Drug Policy from Ryerson University, the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, and the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project out of Ottawa. We have two links for donation that will be up on our website. One link is to support the ongoing prison abolition organizing that our group is doing. A lot of that is going to support the phone and email zap tools that we have uh, kind of subscribed to uh, the hosting capacities of this Zoom seminar, as well as the provision of honoraria, hopefully in the future for speakers, especially prioritizing frontline workers and people with lived experience for their time. The second link that's going to be up is a new link, and that is the uh, beginning of a fundraising campaign for mutual aid funds for prisoners and their families. So as we are seeing prisons and other carceral spaces starting to depopulate, there's also a growing need for resources for these folks. So that's another thing that will be linked up on our website. Every Friday, we are launching an email zap. This is something that we've been doing since we were organizing for communication access in prisons. The message of the ZAP will change every week, although it will prioritize issues of connections and communications, but focusing on specific populations. So once again, that email ZAP link is on our various Facebook pages, and it can be found on the CPEP website as well. So with all of that out of the way, I'm going to introduce our panelists and then the format of the discussion tonight. So our first panelist is Robin Maynard. Robin Maynard is the author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. Her writing on race, gender, and discrimination is taught widely in universities, and her expertise is regularly sought in local, national, international media outlets and committees. Maynard has a long history of involvement in community activism and advocacy. She's been a part of grassroots movements against racial profiling, police violence, detention, and deportation for over a decade, and has extensive work history in harm reduction-based service provisions serving sex workers, drug users, incarcerated women, and marginalized youth in Montreal. Robin is currently a PhD student and a Vanier Scholar at the University of Toronto and is working towards the completion of a new manuscript. Second, our second panelist is Anita Zaghetti, who is the president of the Law and Mental Disorder Association, LAMDA, which is a volunteer organization of 150 lawyers who represent individuals with mental health issues. She's the author of three textbooks on mental health law and has been representing individuals detained in psychiatric hospitals civilly or under the criminal code for more than 25 years. Anita believes in liberty and autonomy for all individuals, including those in crisis. And then finally, we have Justin Pichet. Justin Pichet is an associate professor in the Department of Criminology and the director of the Carceral Studies Research Collective at the University of Ottawa. He's also the co-editor of the peer-reviewed prisoner-written journals of prisoners on prisoners and the founding member of the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project. His action research examines how the prison as a dominant response to criminalized acts is justified and resisted. So Justin has been active in the movement to abolish prisons, punitive injustice, and carceral state control for over 15 years. And he's currently working on a book with critical resistance, founding member Rachel Herzing, entitled How to Abolish Prisons, Lessons from the Movement Against Imprisonment. And this is forthcoming with Verso. And so in general, I've asked our speakers to think through some of the following questions for their comments. The dangers being posed by COVID-19 in the communities that these folk are working with. What's happening right now? What's being done? What needs to be done? And how does depopulation and decarceration fit into the conversations that are having, being had around these particular populations? And so again, we're specifically focusing on who is being left out and who is being left behind by depopulation movements. Men, women, folks in provincial or federal custodies, nonviolent or violent offenders, and people in psychiatric settings as well. Well, thanks a lot for having me tonight. I think that this is a really important discussion. It's great that we're seeing a lot more movement around this, I would say, over the last week, although not for the, really for the reasons as the pandemic is just increasing in severity as well. I'll be speaking today about, broadly, I think, about the really important hunger strike that was happening with the detainees in Laval and the context for their release, as well as an update on the case 
I'll be talking a little bit more broadly as well about uh, detention as a form of carceral control, just to introduce the topic as why, as how this is a really important part of what it means to struggle for decarceration in this time and always. I just want to give much credit, uh, though I'm speaking about this today, of course, the hunger strike, the political and intellectual labor that went behind that was the hunger strikers themselves speaking of the person who's chosen as, uh, their name, Abdul, as a spokesperson, and the other detainees. You know, the reason that migrant detention and the release of migrants has been so much in the news over the past week, really, you know, the credit goes for to those incredibly brave uh, people that were willing to, uh, to take a stand in that way and really put their lives on the line to fight for their own detention and release. I also want to just note that a lot of the long-term support around this anti-detention work has been carried out by the hardworking and brilliant team of people in Montreal uh, with solidarity across borders in terms of support caravans, in terms of daily audio recording of the migrants. I've been working in collaboration with them as a part of BLMTO, really offering some satellite support to bringing a lot of the issues to the forefront. Yeah, that's been something that we've also, we've just been trying to bring more attention to is the realities in particular of black migrants, especially given that so many people have crossed the border from the United States into Canada, being held in detention really in Laval over recent years. So those are how those two issues really tied together. So I think first of all, it's important to think about the fact that immigration detention is part of the, you know, what we can think of as the prison industrial complex and carceral controls over people's lives specifically. Though it's not considered a kind of criminal punishment, it's considered technically administrative in terms of it's not actually being a punishment in the way that the criminal justice system is intended to be. People can be detained if they, if they think that there's reason to complete an examination, if there's reason to believe that that person's inadmissible on the grounds of security, of violating human or international rights, serious criminality broadly, or if they have reasonable grounds to believe that somebody won't show up for an immigration hearing, for example, or is otherwise not able to satisfy their, their identity. Previously, of course, to the pandemic numbers, if we look at the rates of detention stats in Canada, we see that in 2018, 2019, we have really high, like, quite high rates of detention. About 8,781 people were detained over that year, largely in immigration holding facilities, but also a significant amount of people in provincial jails, right? So even when we talk about these systems being separate, the fact that actually a lot of migrants being held in detention are actually being held in jails, we see that it's not even an abstract crossover, that it's actually people being held in similar, the same places, the same conditions. That number of detainees this, in 2018, 2019 has actually gone up uh, from, it was 83, 8,355 the year before that. So again, we can see like a pretty large increase in detentions that we've seen even though the liberal government is always sort of trying to contrast itself against as, as being kinder and as being more humane, for example. They're pre, again, COVID. I'm just going to, I'm trying to give the, a little bit of the carceral context before the crisis, just to sort of give a general understanding of numbers and where we're at. There are usually about 300 people on any given day. There's still significant rates of, of minors being held in detention, especially in the Quebec region, even though there are less than there used to be. I think that's just really important to note, especially because Canadians like to point to the United States and the detention of children as this cruel and inhumane site of violence, when that's actually something that is really still a part of Canadian reality. I also think it's important to note just myself speaking as a Black feminist, as a, you know, someone that does a lot of work around the policing of Black peoples, that we can think about detention too as a kind of anti-Black carceral control that really has evolved historically over control over Black people's mobilities, you know, even looking to the early iterations of passports and many other ways that control over movements have been designed has, class, has historically really been linked to controlling Black peoples and really in the same way, in the contemporary way, still is. So for Black people especially, the link between the criminal injustice system and the immigration system is very fluid, right? Because if you think about half of the Black population being born elsewhere, for example, these two things really overlap with each other continuously. But what I wanted to speak to most today was the hunger strike that's happening right now, because I think that what that's, what's that really is showing us is the extreme importance of releasing people in detention always, but especially in the context of the pandemic. So the European Council, the UN High Commission for Human Rights, uh, and many other bodies have noted the potentially catastrophic effects of people in that people in detention in particular are facing with regards to COVID-19 and have urged governments to reduce uh, detainees. So the British government, for example, has liberated 
hundreds of uh, migrant detainees in Germany has closed a migrant detention center, for example. Nanki Rai, who's a doctor who spoke at a press conference that we held about this on Saturday, has noted that the decontamination of surfaces is nearly impossible. The six foot distancing is almost impossible. Many of the things that were being prescribed um, in an immigration detention center uh, is not possible in terms of prevention. That the close confinement, the poor nutrition, the poor air quality, the limited access to quality healthcare, that this is actually also compromising people's immune systems and increasing the risk of complications of any uh, COVID-19 infection that could take place. So most importantly, I think today, is the hunger strike that is happening that I've, that I've alluded to, which really, if we look to the legacy of how this all evolved, began on March 19th, when 34 detainees delivered a handwritten petition to government officials, to the Federal Minister of Public Safety, to the Federal Minister of Immigration, the Prime Minister of Canada, and the Federal and Quebec Ministers of Health. The petition read, we're currently detained at the Laval Immigration Holding Center Given the urgent situation of the propagation of the coronavirus, we believe that we are at high risk of contamination. Here in the detention center, we are in a confined space. Every day we see the arrival of people, of immigrants from everywhere who have no medical appointment nor any tests to determine whether or not they are potential carriers of the virus. There's also the presence of security staff who are in contact with the external world every day and that have not had testing. For these reasons, we are writing this petition to ask to be released. After a week of inaction on the part of the government officials, they launched uh, an indefinite hunger strike to demand their release, as well as the, the release of detainees, migrant detainees more broadly. So they wrote a communique on March 24th, and I'll read that out loud as well. I think that using people's own words is often the best way to describe a circumstance. Uh, they write, following the petition we wrote on, 19 Mar on March 19th, which had little impact on our situation of detention, and I'm this is translated from French. We have decided to move to the second phase of our plan. This is to go on an indefinite hunger strike starting today. This will be done in the most peaceful way and we are not breaking any detention center rules. Thank you for your support and all help is welcome. So on the men's side of the detention center, there were 10 hunger strikers uh, after a few days refusing all meals despite really continuous pressure from CBSA to desist, including being threatened with being moved to jails um, and many other things. And by March 25th, the day of the press conference, they really had succeeded in intimidating many people out of the hunger strike. So there were four that remained. And as Abdul, their spokesperson, described himself, they had learned about uh, COVID-19, you know, not from the guards, but from television, from newspapers, and were becoming increasingly panicked because of the lack of social distancing that they were again learning from about from the media, sleeping in shared rooms and being unable to maintain safe distances. When I spoke with one of the strikers on the phone, they mentioned that there was somebody continuously coughing who had not been quarantined for weeks, right? So these are very real fears. With So I think that, and you know, as I was speaking of sort of that, sometimes we don't think about the racial violence or the, the racist realities of detention, but Abdul himself, who's a Senegalese migrant, is actually one of those Black asylum seekers who had crossed from the United States border into Canada, who at the time Canada was describing this, right, as the Canada's new underground railroad in McLean's in New York Magazine, and now we see that this person has ended up in detention, is also now, you know, was forced to be on hunger strike just in order to have their basic uh, health needs taken care of. So we do have some updates, which is, you know, this did make significant attention. There was a large social media campaign that was launched in support of the hunger strikers. It said, we want our health, our security to be taken seriously. Um, and CBSA actually, as an update, has been doing case reviews of people in detention and have been applying the vulnerability criteria. So there has been some movement. And as of today, which is really an incredible feat, the hunger strikers, uh, the, the two remaining hunger strikers had been released, which is excellent news and does show that, you know, this kind of really question that they never should have had to take, obviously, right? You should never have to go, you should never have to starve yourself in order to have access to the basic health protections that your society is supposed to provide you. But nonetheless were released, even if it was this slow action. And I think that that's something that's really important to note. That's a really important victory on their part. But um, as Abdul himself has said today, that victory is both important that they're released, but there are still 22 people inside. There's still not the collective release that detainees have been demanding in terms of, of course, their own health, in terms of their own security. A few days ago, it was discovered that a CBSA guard in the Toronto Immigration Holding Center actually had tested positive for COVID-19. So there's still a situation of acute danger for those detainees who, are, who have still not been released, even as this sort of slow and eventual process is happening. So, you know, there's been this incredible outpouring of support across the country that has been really wonderful that I think has brought this 
this issue, which is something that's seen a lot of change over the last eight or 10 days. And I think, yeah, I don't want to speak over time, but I just wanted to, I thought that it was important to sort of tie in how this links in with other struggles briefly. So if there's a moment, I might, I wanted to read, there was an incredible letter of solidarity written by the prisoners uh, from the Burnside prison strike, which I think really shows the not abstract connection of releasing people in prison and releasing people who are in detention centers, that in their own words really illuminates these organic connections between different kinds of, of confinement. So they write, and these will be my final words, from the Burnside prison strikers to the Laval hunger strikers, solidarity. Prisons and former, prisoners and former prisoners of Burnside and our fellow incarcerated people in federal and provincial institutions stand in support of the Laval hunger strikers. Detainees in the Laval Immigration Center have been, on hunger, have been hunger striking for the past week. We stand with them in demanding their release. As people held in prisons and jails, we know firsthand the danger of COVID-19 infection in these facilities. Like the hunger strikers, we know the unclean conditions, the impossibility of social distancing, the lack of access to healthcare, and the health problems already caused by incarcerations. These things make prisons dangerous all the time, but especially during a pandemic. So I think with that display of these different interlapping forms of confinement that people are trying to struggle against at this time, I will end and pass to the next speaker. Thank you. So I wanted to say thank you very much to the organizers uh, for including me and to Robin for those comments, which are incredibly helpful to our clients and our struggle. I'm just gonna start with some basics so uh, people know the population that uh, I'm talking about. It, we're talking about psychiatric detainees who are inpatients in psychiatric facilities. And uh, I can tell you in 28 years of doing this work, I have uh, never felt so frustrated and desperate and moved to tears really on a regular basis how much my clients are being left behind. They are literally the last group of people that anybody's thinking about in terms of what will happen to them as they remain locked into psychiatric units when COVID hits inside. South Korea has published its results with what's happened there consequent to COVID spreading inside. And the results are that 90% of those logged on to psychiatric wards will in fact get COVID once there is one person infected. The particular problem is that as a population, psychiatric inpatient clients are prone to increased risk of death from COVID well beyond the sort of average for the population. Uh, first of all, more than 90% of our clients smoke cigarettes. Uh, there's a reason for that. The cigarette smoking alleviates uh, severe adverse effects of antipsychotic medications such as movement disorders and, and neurological disorders. And most of our clients have diabetes. That is also as a result of the particular kinds of antipsychotic medications that increase the risk of diabetes uh, and cause them to be diabetic. As we know, diabetes reduces their ability to fight infection. Some of the particular psychiatric medications that a, a huge percentage of the clients are on, such as clozapine, also affect their body's ability and their immune systems, their ability to fight infection and affect their white blood cell counts. So the population is extraordinarily vulnerable. They are detained in close quarters with no ability for physical distancing. And we simply don't know what the various psychiatric facilities have done to any privileges uh, that, and passes that these clients have previously had available, such as even fresh air passes. They likely have taken them away without telling anyone and we're simply unable to get any answers. So. Uh, I've been, you know, rattling as much as I can, but we've really hit a wall and uh, it's, in, it's actually incredibly offensive how much these clients are being left behind. So who are we talking about in terms of psychiatric inpatient populations? We're talking about clients detained in psychiatric hospitals. There are two kinds of such hospitals. There are 10 or 11, depending how you count them, the so-called provincial psychiatric facilities which used to be run by the Ministry of Health and have since been divested into the private sector. These are big hospitals filled with nothing but psychiatric detainees. So that CAMH is an example, Ontario Shores in Whitby, St. Joe's in Hamilton, Waypoint in Penetang, Thunder Bay, London, St. Thomas, Kingston, and Silaps for youth. All that they have are psychiatric inpatients. There are also every general hospital that has a psychiatric ward can also detain individuals under the civil system. So how are people detained there? I'm just giving an overview. There is civil commitment, 
versus people coming in through criminal justice. So what are the avenues of challenging uh, the detention in the systems? And I'll just say uh, up front that while Toronto's homeless population has deservedly so benefited from successful advocacy uh, that's led the mayor to buy up or rent out hotels, and there's at least some efforts, you know, certainly not sufficient, but some efforts to relocate and to house people and to facilitate distancing and provide a space for recovery. Literally nothing like that has happened in terms of psychiatric detention. Nobody has facilitated release. Nobody has relocated. Nothing's changed. Nothing's been done. People, if anything, have been more restricted and more locked down within the system and onto their units than before. So what are some legal avenues of challenging the detention in the system? For those civilly detained, the mechanism is through the Consent and Capacity Board and hearings there. This is a tribunal that managed to convert its hearings very quickly to telephone hearings instead of in-person hearings as of March 16. And my colleagues and I have tried everything to get the tribunal to have any sensitivity or appreciation for how COVID plays into civil detention. In the criminal system, you know, bail hearings and bail reviews have recognized that those who are releasable ought to be released to avoid detention because of COVID. But with psychiatric detention, the, the um, paternalism is rampant. There's just a systems-wide belief that people are better off because they're in a hospital, quote unquote, that they're better off, they're protected, it's an asylum. People are not thinking about, about getting people out so that they don't die inside. What's particularly frustrating and incredibly anger-making is that people are detained civilly for a very low threshold of risk. Some people are detained because one physician has signed a piece of paper that that doctor believes, that psychiatrist believes that the individual is at risk of mental deterioration, substantial mental deterioration, consequent to mental disorder. So on the one hand, someone's logged onto a unit, an overcrowded unit with other patients with no ability to leave, because if they were released, they would be at risk of some deterioration in their mental state versus the very real risk they're, they're going to die as a direct result of the detention, the psychiatric confinement uh, of the law that one physician can sign with their paper. That's the civil thing. We've tried everything to get the tribunal to understand the urgency. Unfortunately, they are responding the other way, and they have turned it around on us, as a, used it as a sword rather than a shield, and suggested to us that our clients would be out there spreading, uh, spreading COVID to the general population if they were not locked down because they can't be trusted to self-isolate or quarantine or respect physical distancing rules and that we're protecting them from homelessness and from shelters by keeping them logged in the hospital. Despite that, uh, they would be safer, in my view, homeless or in the shelter system. The, those who come in through criminal justice who are not criminally responsible for uh, an offense charge, they, their situation is reviewed by a different tribunal, the Ontario Review Board, and it did not convert its proceedings to electronic proceedings. Rather, as of March 16, it canceled three weeks of hearings altogether. So we didn't even have the opportunity, despite putting enormous pressure on them to convene hearings, to allow us to release the releasable. They just refused to convene any hearings. We, I think, got word yesterday that they're going to hold their hearings now via Zoom starting next week. And that's not great. Clearly, no one's given any thought to the fact that our clients cannot access internet. So those of our clients who are not in the institution who have hearings coming up about what's to be done, not be able to participate, they're required to participate, arrangements haven't been made for the clients. Um, but the biggest problem that I'm facing as of today is institutions are not prepared to tell us or tell their patients, clients, or make public whether COVID is in fact appeared within these uh, psychiatric hospitals, and whether patients, clients have tested positive, or whether staff have. And so what's happening now is I'm getting information, the equivalent of the brown paper envelope under my doorway, uh, in that people are smuggling information to me about the fact that clients and staff are testing positive for COVID, for example, in CAMH. And despite putting pointed questions to the institution's lawyers, I cannot get any answers to these questions. I've been trying now for fully almost 24 hours as of nine o'clock yesterday evening to confirm information that I have received 
in this confidential off the record way about inpatients testing positive, as well as staff MH. I don't understand why this information is not being made public. It's my view that our clients need to know, the outpatients need to know, but they should come in to do their mandatory reporting. I don't want to be advising my clients that compliance with their sort of probation equivalent orders is necessary if I fear that they may get sick by complying with that. I shouldn't be left in this position of trying to do this risk assessment. People need to know if they should voluntarily admit themselves to certain institutions. Everybody's stressed. All of our mental health is obviously suffering during these exceptional times. But if you wanted to, if you were uh, struggling and you wanted to decide whether uh, you should admit yourself to a psychiatric facility right now voluntarily for some help, for example, if you're feeling uh, self-harm is likely, wouldn't you want to know whether the institution has COVID, whether the patients have COVID or not? I am incredibly frustrated because I cannot, for love or money, get a public health institution, a public hospital, to answer a simple question of whether or not COVID has hit inside on the inpatient units. They simply will not answer my questions. So our clients are left behind. No one's been released. Uh, it all, it's down to me and my, my associate and our colleagues in my association to advocate for, for release or review. And we're tired and we're frustrated, we're angry. And I think the stigma, the, the discrimination, nobody cares uh, about our clients. They, people mistakenly believe that they are safe uh, where they are within a hospital setting that's kinder and gentler and more therapeutic than a jail. But it, as we all know, it's, it's exactly the same thing. Thank you for moderating this and for everyone else to, to join tonight. I'm pleased to be here. Um, I want to be, begin by acknowledging all the great work that's been done across Canada and elsewhere in the world to free prisoners. Um, most of us involved in this work now have been at this for a while. Um, we've encountered uh, numerous barriers in the long-term struggle towards abolition and have made many gains in the past few weeks. Um, many provinces and territories across Canada have taken some measures to reduce the number of people caged in their jails and prisons. Having said this, of the thousands of criminalized people that have been diverted and decarcerated from Canada's provincial and territorial jails and prisons, including 2,000 people in Ontario uh, alone, the Toronto Sun report just came out with those numbers, most have either been accused or have been convicted of engaging in quote-unquote non-serious and non-violent law-breaking. I think uh, this development is indicative of what Ruth Gilmore calls the problem of innocence. Uh, whereby the freeing of some prisoners is secured on the grounds that they are undeserving of their fate, uh, while the caging of others, notably those who have been uh, deemed violent or dangerous by the state, are left in chains, uh, legitimating the deprivation of liberty in the process. Um, and it's those who remain behind bars who, in quote-unquote normal times, and especially now, are being subject to what Achille Membe calls necropolitics, that is the right to be killed or exposed uh, to death by the state. I think this is a significant challenge to abolitionist organizing and we need to ensure that that no one is disposable, that none of us is left behind as we work towards decarceral futures until one day, however close or far that may be, that uh, human caging ends. This necessarily uh, requires, as Faye Honey Knopp has noted during her lifetime of working towards the ab abolition of prisons, that we confront rather than run away from the question of the dangerous few. That is, how do we respond when people engage in violence without acknowledging the harms they cause, without remorse, and without a commitment to desist? So following the insights of International Conference on Penal Abolition founder Ruth Morris uh, and others who have studied the harms of the powerful, let's talk about the dangerous few, uh, like the CEOs of corporations that have made millions and billions of dollars for their owners and shareholders that are now temporarily laying off significant portions of the workforces who built their wealth in quote-unquote good times and are now leaving them high and dry in this crisis. The lives of these workers will be permanently altered by these temporary measures. This is violence. This is dangerous. Are these merchants of misery behind bars? No. Let's talk about those in the halls of government who maintain that the prohibition of some psychoactive substances is in our interest even during the COVID-19 public health crisis when people continue to die from overdoses. Let's talk about how 
Canadian carceral state actors continue to criminalize and incarcerate people with the knowledge that they are condemning them to poorer health and in some cases death. This is violence. This is dangerous. Are these purveyors of death, many of which are, are well-intentioned, uh, behind bars? Fuck no. The powerful don't acknowledge the harms they cause. They are without remorse, and they are without a commitment to desist from the dangers uh, they expose others to through normalized and legalized violence. Yet cages tend to be reserved for those who are less powerful and whose actions are framed by intellectuals that reproduce cultural hegemony in mainstream politics and media as dangerous and threatening to public safety, and who are said to be incapable of living safely amongst us, right? The law-abiding and hardworking citizens. So I guess like one point I'm trying to make here is that the criteria that we're using to decide who gets and doesn't get caged and who must remain in them is based on a definition of dangerousness that diverts our attention from what all human beings, including those being freed now, require to be safe, stable and secure housing, food, uh, universal basic income, health and mental health care, and other basic necessities of life that have been denied to far too many people in our communities and across the world for far too long. And yes, uh, of course we need freedom from interpersonal violence, but we also require freedom from carceral colonial capitalism. So to circle back to an earlier point, depopulation efforts that are happening at the provincial territorial level and that will hopefully happen soon at the federal level need to include those uh, deemed by state actors to be violent and dangerous, especially on the basis of court decisions and risk assessment tools that are known to be systematically discriminatory. The Office of the Correctional Investigator of Canada has documented that. The Supreme Court of Canada has a decision on that. Um, this being the case, I want to make the point that no one is inherently violent. Violence from assault to corporate downsizing and government layoffs, if you happen to live in Alberta right now, occurs when structures of violence uh, classism, racism, colonialism, capitalism, sexism, misogyny, so on, makes it seem acceptable to relate to others in violent ways. Um, violence also happens in structural circumstances where either people are positioned to have power over others and use it to assert domination and control, or where there are little or no better choices available to assure one's survival. I'm not excusing uh, or explaining the harm that others cause away. But what I'm pointing to is the possibility that when life circumstances and structures of power are changed, when we can be held to account and still be treated with dignity and respect, when communities of support get built around people, that is how we produce community safety. Human caging does none, none of that work. It rather discards people to face state violence and, and now the prospect of, of COVID-19 exposure. So. No one's disposable, not ourselves, not anyone else. We need to divert and decarcerate to the extent that's currently possible while reaching towards a just transition from the prison industrial complex in the Canadian carceral state. And I think in this moment, we need to dream about what Angela Davis, borrowing from W.E.B. Du Bois, calls abolition democracy. We need to imagine about, we need to imagine about the institutions we need to build now to nourish life and those we need to dismantle that injure, maim, and kill people. So I'm going to pose a couple of questions to the panel just to get us kind of moving. I'd like to ask uh, all, everyone right now, Robin, you were talking about how uh, in, in the UK, hundreds of detainees are being released. In Germany, a uh, detention camp has been shut down. Anita, you're speaking to the difficulties trying to get folks released from psychiatric detention. Justin, you're also speaking to the need to think about possibilities beyond cages. But on kind of a concrete level, what kinds of supports right now are needed in order to make these transitions possible? What kinds of resources are available at the moment? How are people organizing to support the communities that are being released? What kind of concretely and materially uh, needs to be done to, to get here? I, for my part, find it a lot easier to to scream about how bad things are and I don't necessarily have any of the, the answers. I can tell you for, for the detained psychiatric clients, I would have been very gratified to see and if COVID spreading on the inpatient units, it may be too late. But for the last three weeks, we've been screaming for some, anything that would have been similar to what Toronto uh, homeless population is getting in terms of 
spreading out space and, and living space and hotels and housing. Because one of the things that's keeping our clients detained is this theory that they would otherwise not be housed. So if they were released, they would be homeless or, or in the shelter system. So, so house them temporarily or otherwise pr provide housing. I mean, the underlying issue of housing for persons with mental health issues is obviously a huge problem anyway. But right now, get them out instead of putting them on top of each other with everything else everyone else has said. That's what's really needed is supports to, to get them out of the lockdown and housed, at, whether in, in the hotels, the motels, or otherwise. That's the, the biggest overriding need, I would say. Uh, but just one other thing, if people would just support us in asking questions of your psychiatric institutions locally and going on social media and going on Facebook and saying to CAMH, is there COVID? on your inpatient units? Are you releasing the people that can be safely released? What efforts are you making to save the lives of your patients? And can you be transparent and public and let us know what you're doing because they're, not, they're, they're being obstructionist and, and all the institutions are refusing to answer questions. So I would really be supported by people putting tough questions and demanding answers to these institutions that are not accountable to anybody for some reason that I can see. And I think that particularly what we're seeing, you know, as we start to see this, some releases in terms of people that are being detained, I think particularly the logic why people ever needed to be held in immigration detention starts to fall apart, right? Because if people are able to be released, if people are able to live in the community, similarly people being released from prison, then what? It really undoes the, the sense-making logic of why people ever needed to be in these extremely expensive cages that are a form of violence, right? If it was always possible for them to be out, then why would we ever be able to justify people being held in the first place, right? Like if we think about how much money it had cost, for example, to have over 8,000 people in cages uh, due largely to being things like flight risks, aka like having a family and wanting to stay, for example, in Canada or a failure to have identity. And I don't mean to contrast that against, I think, what Justin notes, you know, against the bad offender or the dangerous offender, right? But I think particularly when it comes to migrant detainees, we see that the violation is like a violation of nation state logics and a border, right? It's about people's citizenship. It's not about any tangible thing. So we start to realize that the reason for this detention was never there. And we always already had the capacity to, for people to be able to work, for people to be able to have housing. And that is really encompassed under the broader migrant justice demand status for all. If we look at people just being able to have the basic tenets of having access to healthcare, access to work, there would be no reason, uh, and there is no justifiable reason for caging uh, migrants just for not having access to the same kinds of paperwork or the same kind of birthplace of having not been born in England, but in Senegal, for example, right? So I think that we kind of see this undoing and it's really just maintaining, I think, us maintaining the force of that, of that shift, of that mind shift that this brings us. I wanted to say, oh yes, I think because we were, you were talking about what it means to, again, create the conditions for people to be able to be safe. I think that also when it comes to thinking about, you know, people who are displaced in the first place, especially now that we're seeing the ways in which capitalism has made, has made this crisis so much worse, right? Has made it so that we don't have a decent, very well-funded uh, healthcare because it's been systematically decimated over decades. It's that same kind of violence, that, that same kind of economic violence in a different way, that structural adjustment, right, that's been enacted violently on, you know, decolonized, decolonizing African nations, the Caribbean nations, really anywhere, <laughs> uh, any of the non-European formerly colonized countries, right, that have been decimated, that are having people now be even more vulnerable to COVID in, in those countries, right? But if we also think about those kinds of dis that kind of economic violence is creating displacement in the first place. If we're going to continue to have an economy that's based on the massive destruction of people's homelands, then to have another policy that says that those people belong in cages just for simply arriving here, we see that it's always been a moral abomination, right? Even if it's been done within uh, the realm of the law. To just speak really quickly, more specifically, to tangible kinds of support beyond, I think, really maintaining that intellectual and political shift that I think that we will need to see to continue to support people being released and remaining in their communities and also of course not being deported once once this is eventually over right that we continue to maintain this kind of solidarity of saying that these people matter even in the context where there's not a pandemic right that it should have they should have always mattered into a broader public but uh, more broadly we are still asking people to push for the the release of the remaining detainees because they're not people are not only held as I'd mentioned 
in immigration detention centers, but also in jails. So we need to continue to push so that everyone, and not just three a day, for example, but a collective release to, to, free, to free all detainees. So that means still continuing to push the public uh, safety minister, to push Bill Blair, and to push the, the federal health minister to continue to push for release. And I'll actually send out a link that Solidarity Cross Borders has put together of really specific ways to support right away. In ter- terms of the work of depopulating federal penitentiaries, um, maybe just before talking about support, I'll just kind of briefly talk about different mechanisms that could be used. So the F- CSC is currently suspended temporary absences. They should actually be uh, using them and extend the length of those temporary absences. And they should be also extending parole for those who are past or nearing their release eligibility dates, as well as people who are um, with medical conditions that put them at greater risk uh, should they contract COVID-19. Where releases, including for first-time prisoners, are not possible, or for other prisoners for that matter, are not possible via temporary absences or parole, the federal government can use, as Senator Kim Pate has mentioned, uh, the Royal Prerogative of Mercy. We are caging hundreds of criminalized women across this country right now uh, in two facilities that, that have COVID cases in Joliet uh, and Grand Valley uh, Institution. Many of those women have been psychologically, physically, and sexually abused during the course of their lives. And now we're subjecting them to state violence through incarceration. And we're continuing to do so during the COVID-19 crisis. And that's even, even more harmful uh, than business as usual. Criminalized women must be released now. No one is disposable, and I think re-entry plans should be created for all federal prisoners, listing what would be required to have them safely housed in the community in the event that it becomes necessary to release them in manners that are consistent with public health and safety requirements. Whether the conditions in terms of of public opinion and political will and what's required in the community uh, can happen, to meet those requirements is another question, but I think we, we should start imagining what those decarceral futures could look like, if not, if not now, then, then down the road. Individuals released from federal penitentiaries uh, could return to their homes where they have them, or community residential facilities operated by nonprofit organizations. Cost $330 to house one federal prisoner every day. And the staff that, you know, CSE has thousands of staff members could remobilize those resources in the community. There's no reason uh, that through a combination of, of resources, such as stable housing, along with the support that, that's required, that many federal prisoners could not be safely released uh, now. You know, I'm not saying everyone could be released immediately, um, but uh, we, we can work towards that. And can I, do you mind, Jessica, if I just jump in, because both um, Robin and Justin have reminded me of a very, very good point uh, in respect of my clients. Nothing's more expensive than forensic psychiatric detention. Like those, those beds are like $1,400 a day or something ridiculous. We could, we could put people up in the most expensive hotels for weeks and months for what it costs to detain them for, for one day. It's a ridiculous expenditure of resources. A lot of those people, most of those people, maybe maybe all of those people don't require to be there at all. And the, the, the cost factor is a really important point that I completely neglect to make. Uh, but I, I thank Robin and Justin for bringing that to my attention. It, it's an enormous amount of money we're wasting on locking people up who could, who could be released. Yeah, thank you, Anita. And Robin, do you happen to know off the top of your head the cost of daily detention for uh, one of the IHCs? Not off the top of my head. I could, uh, I could quickly, I could quickly find that. But something that is interesting, I think, to note, um, you know, after there was that's related to that, that's related to the costs and the ways that we continue to socially weigh uh, punishment over other things. After there was like a pretty significant hunger strike a few years ago, that was actually they announced shortly after that that they would that they would address the, some of the injustices brought after a migrant detainee hunger strike by putting, a, by putting $138 million towards what ended up being the building of a new immigration detention center, right? So if you think about what it means to, to address the mass injustices of racial confinement of migrant detention, instead you actually have this massive investment in a new facility. And now that new facility is being branded as more humane. For example, they're describing it as having vines that will surround the windows so that people can't see the bars, um, having play areas for the children to play, right? But in detention, that means still conceiving of a world of, a, of, you know, of a nation in which the, 
the caging of children is is still considered humane, right? So we just consider it's reinvesting money as opposed to what it would mean to actually disinvest in the incarceration of people in a broad way of actually just allowing people to live and work freely, right? So I think that that's a pretty, we can see just the continued investment more broadly in migrant detention as sort of an ideological phenomenon. Thank you so much for tuning in to another edition of the Jured podcast. We've included links to the resources outlined. Just go to juredfoundation.wordpress.com for more information. You can subscribe to our podcast to access our latest episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. Earlier this week, we released a podcast relating to the right to refuse unsafe work. Previously, related to COVID, we've come out with materials on progressive lawyering and also housing rights. We plan on providing more Know Your Rights legal information to keep you informed during this COVID-19 pandemic. Send us suggestions or let us know if you want to even get involved. Linking this to present struggles, I am going to do some call-outs for different hashtags which are relevant to this particular episode. Check out the hashtag FreeTheMallCaravan, the hashtag HungerStrikeLaval, on Zap, which I don't actually know what Zap is, but hashtag no number one, so no one is disposable, as well as hashtag supply or we die, all one word. Shout out to Solidarity Across Borders in Montreal. We will put up their action sheet for those wishing to be more active on migrant detainee organizing. Something that comes from the original organizers, if you want to support this ongoing project of webinars on rights, prisoner rights, please click on the link for the Prison Abolition Organizing Group on GoFundMe. And that is kind of a complicated link to read, but it is on our website, so you can find it there. You probably know by now that you've been listening to the Jurad Podcast, and it is the podcast of the Jurad Foundation. You can reach us by emailing us, juredfoundation at gmail.com. That's J-U-R-E-D, foundation. You can find us on Twitter, J-U-R underscore E-D, on Facebook, too. Give us a like. Give us a follow. Feel free to support us. And thank you for listening. I hope you and your community, friends and family, are safe during these difficult times. See you next time. Thank you.